0: This is the VIP Late Lunch with Lee Sterry on The Voice of Niagara, News Talk 610 CKTB. Well, good afternoon. Welcome into Thursday, November 23rd, to Ot 17 and here in the VIP Late Lunch every Thursday, Legal Matters. Chris Richard uh, of Graves & Richard uh, joins us each and every Thursday at this time, Niagara's largest personal injury law firm. Uh, Chris, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Uh, glad to have you along for the ride again. <sighs> trying to trying to think of how we could uh, how how we could uh, talk about personal injury injury law a, as it uh, relates to highly paid basketball players shoplifting in China but <laughs> oh boy oh boy
1: that uh, and uh, my my son is a big basketball fan Okay, and he is really enjoying <laughs> the back and forth between Trump and and uh, Lavar Ball. Ball yeah god <laughs> um Actually, it was interesting. I was reading a more serious story about that incident uh, just this morning, and they were uh, asking the question, how much did Trump actually do? I mean, he's taking all the credit for this. Well, he did uh, everything, apparently. <laughs> according to him, yes. And they looked at kind of past practice of China and what likely would, be, mm-hmm. would have happened if Trump hadn't said a word, if Trump hadn't done a thing. And the conclusion of this article I read was that it, would have been the very same result because, uh, for foreigners who are involved in in what's fairly minor activity. China just wants to get them out of the country, so they would likely deport them in any event. But I don't know if that's true, but that's what I read in the story, Crazy. and that seems to make some sense to me.
0: And when you've got when you've got a, a guy like Trump and a mouthpiece like uh, like LeVar Ball, that that is just a great comment. That's a combination uh, made in a chemical lab somewhere. <laughs> that's right. That's
1: right. So, uh,
0: b- before we
1: got started on a topic, I had an update for us. Oh. Because uh, a okay. couple of
0: weeks ago, we had a show, and it was
1: the Great Law Society of Upper Canada debate. Yes. And... Yes, uh, they were going to change the name, uh, and they had a poll. The results of the poll are in, okay. and the new name will be the Law Society of
0: Ontario. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody said it had to be creative.
1: No, that's right, and uh, and uh, now the funny thing. Well. It's not funny, but the thing that's amusing is we have this debate. The Law Society has passed the resolutions. Uh, I mean, there was some legitimate debate about it in the profession. I'm, I really don't care that much, to be honest. But, uh, but the resolutions have been passed to change the name. Uh, So, in all of the marketing materials, it will be changed. However, the Ontario legislature actually has to pass legislation. Oh, gosh. (laughs) They have to amend uh, the Law Society Act in order to officially uh, make it come to pass. So, some of the the levels of bureaucracy are kind of interesting to see how hard it is to do that.
0: Now the legislative branch takes over. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, the Law Society of Ontario Ontario. is what we're going to have now. That's right. Performing exactly the same function as the Law Society of Upper Canada. Exactly. Okay good. Thank you. Thank you for giving us the update, though. It's always good to get updates. Uh, We're talking about a term, excessive force. It's a term we hear uh, a lot. Whenever we hear that term, it's almost exclusively in our mind, like a knee-jerk reaction. We think about law enforcement. We think about police. But it's, it's more than that. So that's where we're going today.
1: Yeah, that's right. I actually get a fair number of calls in my office about excessive force claims. And the types of calls that I'll often get are, uh, well, probably the most common that I get is in bar situations, so uh, bouncers. Mm-hmm. Uh, next, I'll get calls, uh, I mean, I do get some calls about police, and, and uh, also uh, we'll get calls about activities that occur in prisons. All right. And the other one I'll get is claims of excessive force against uh, private security. So we all see security guards in different scenarios. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll be in malls, uh, some buildings, special events. Yeah. Uh, we'll often hire uh, private security companies.
0: Yeah, construction sites, all kinds of places. That's right.
1: Yeah. Uh, so we'll get uh, claims in that uh, scenario. Really excessive force can relate to almost any situation where someone is trying to exert physical control over another individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, We were talking off air just when we were talking a little bit about uh, this topic, about it It could even go so far as uh, if somebody had broken into your home and you were trying to subdue that person Mm -hmm. in the home. uh, I mean, there's a fair bit of latitude, I think, given, but uh, even excessive force could be... uh, It could be a term
0: related to something like that. Yeah,
1: Yeah, and actually we heard, I can't remember the name of the case, but uh, there was an incident in Toronto a few years back Uh, dealing with the owner of a convenience store and actions that that they had taken for somebody that was uh, shoplifting, I believe, Mm -hmm. uh, from the the store. So anytime one person is trying to exert physical control over another, uh, it doesn't mean that there's excessive force, but it means that you can do an analysis to say, was the force applied reasonable or does it reach a standard uh, of being excessive? So in my office, I'll get quite a few uh, of these calls and... I tend to do kind of a, a bit of an analysis uh, when we go through it to to see whether there might be a potential claim or not. Mm-hmm. So when I do that, the first thing I do is I look at uh, the nature of the injuries. So, you know, has somebody been pretty seriously injured sure. as a result of a of an altercation? And really, that's you know, from a personal injury uh, well that would have to be where it starts uh, well I mean if somebody's liberty is taken away from them even for short periods of time in an unjust way damages can flow from that but but that's a, a kind of a different area of law and a little bit more complicated from just kind of the routine excessive force causing injury type case first okay. thing I look about is 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 there an injury here that seems out of proportion to to what should have happened and in that time I mean if you look at things like fractured uh, fractured bones, you'll look at bruising in areas that you'll wonder why it's there like uh, mm-hmm. facial bruising and things like that and um, uh, multiple areas of the body, right uh, if somebody's sustaining injuries to multiple areas of the body these are little little things that you look at and say this seems just a little out of the ordinary for for what might be requ- required to restrain somebody okay um then the next thing i do is i i try to look at the facts of the situation and who was involved and how many people were involved so If I have a scenario whereby there was one person that needed to be restrained, and using the bouncer situation, I had three or four different bouncers attend to restrain or remove one individual from the premises, and that individual ends up with significant injuries as a result, to me that's a red flag. uh, Because when you have that kind of manpower to remove somebody from Mm -hmm. the premises, that In most situations with people that are trained and they know what they're doing, that should be able to be done uh, without someone sustaining serious injury. Gotcha. The flip side of that coin is, you know, if there's four people that need to be restrained and removed from the property and uh, two bouncers or three bouncers, then that can be a a different scenario and it can require a higher uh, level of force in order to, to accomplish
0: Chris, we're talking about uh, excessive uh, force claims. We were talking about the scenario of how you analyze a claim. First of all, you determine how serious the injuries are, if any, uh, that are involved, and then you go to the the numbers involved. It becomes a bit of a numbers game. Next,
1: that's right. Well, and, and I mean these are just kind of the little clues we look for yeah. to say might there be something here that that deserves more investigation.
0: I mean, in some cases, you may need more people than the initial situation might appear to call for. Absolutely. And truthfully,
1: that's the ideal situation, right? I mean, if you're trying to, for example, as a bouncer, sticking with that example, um, remove somebody from the premises, if you can have a four-to-one ratio, Mm -hmm. that in almost all cases is going to go a lot easier than if uh if you have a one to one ratio. Yeah,
0: tough to fight that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I often, when I think about these cases, uh, in my head, I I think back to that old Patrick Swayze movie, uh, Roadhouse. From okay. uh, I think that movie was from the eighties. Hope I'm not dating myself too much there.
0: Oh, you are, but that's okay.
1: <laughs> but you know, every every night in the bar was uh, was may
0: was a fight. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah.
1: right. Uh, multiple fights going on at once, and uh, so when I analyze these things, that's the first image that uh, goes on in my head is is this a roadhouse situation or yeah. uh, uh, or are people trying to act professionally. Uh, the next thing we always have to look at is what was the condition of the plaintiff and what were the likely actions of the plaintiff. And of course, when whenever I get a call, the initial facts it seems that I get is that the plaintiff was completely innocent in all respects and doing and,
0: everything perfectly. <laughs> right. just, just a lamb, just a wonderful human being. <laughs>
1: so, <laughs> and and sometimes that is actually the case. Uh, and, but. Again, dealing with our bouncer and bar situation, uh, oftentimes we have to look a little beyond that to say, okay, uh, what was the plaintiff like? And then we look, what was the plaintiff's level of intoxication? Do mm-hmm. we have witnesses that can help us that? If the person went to the hospital, do we have hospital records blood tests that would help us with what? A, what's the plaintiff's uh, condition? Uh, do we have uh, witness statements or independent corroboration of what the plaintiff's activities were. So was the plaintiff aggressive? Did they put themselves in a position where additional force would be required? Sure. Uh, So when they're asked to leave, do they make an aggressive behavior towards the bouncers, which requires a split decision Mm -hmm. uh, to be made with respect to restraining? So um, that type of independent evidence is important to kind of... Get right away. So that could be other people that they knew at the bar. If there are other people standing around, we would actually send an investigator out and get witness statements from those people right away, so that right. we get their recollection, and we can determine whether you know uh, this is a situation where the action was provoked by the plaintiff, or were they really kind of an innocent person that uh, that was assaulted. So, uh, kind of a what we're still adjusting to, and something that has made these claims better is the introduction of video surveillance and whereas years ago it was a bit of a he said she said that's right yeah and you know the story from the plaintiff is always that they were acting appropriately and they were assaulted and uh the story we would get from uh the the bouncers or the private security was that there was a real problem that they had to react to and they acted reasonably and it just became came down to who was going to be believed that's not always the case anymore because we now have...
0: Oh, everything is on video from somebody or somewhere. Yeah,
1: and and sometimes these are put in place initially to protect the security services, but I find in my business that the opposite is often true, and sometimes these video surveillance tapes, I use tapes, but they're not really tapes anymore, everything is digital, uh, but these these digital files are often making my case for me because mm-hmm. it's no longer an interpretation issue we can actually look and see what exactly happened who made the first aggressive move uh, was it appropriate and that's always what we're looking for in these cases is uh, what what was reasonable in the circumstances mm-hmm. right and that that can be different from circumstance to circumstance right it, it's not uh, there's no set these actions are reasonable in every circumstance. It's in that particular circumstances, looking at the actions of the plaintiff, looking at yeah. the the harm that could uh, be caused to not only the people involved in the confrontation, but bystanders yeah. and other people. Next
0: time around, different group of people, whole different outcome, maybe.
1: That's right. So it's yeah. really what was what was reasonable in that circumstance, and the law doesn't hold um, people to a standard of perfection. They don't simply substitute their judgment and say, we could have done this in a better way. It's, were the actions reasonable in this particular circumstance, or did they go beyond that Mm -hmm. to the point where the force applied was excessive and not necessary in the circumstances? So, video has been, has really been amazing uh, in the sense that I've had cases that before the video was so prevalent, would have been really tough to make. And all of a sudden, now we have the actions on video, either from a bystander taking a video of it, which is always interesting to get that evidence, or, I mean, there's hidden cameras and security cameras um, everywhere. I always tell my clients, you know, they're they're, uh, nervous about insurance companies doing video surveillance of them in a personal injury action and my response is always from the time you parked your car in the parking lot to the time you got up to my office you've probably been on video surveillance four to five times and it might be more than that
0: (laughs) and depending on the city uh it could be well i mean london england for example is absolutely famous for like cct every everywhere
1: right so uh and uh, places uh likely these things are on video in one way mm-hmm. one way or the other. So we review that video, and in my practice, it happens both ways. Uh, I've had claims that I've gotten the video, and, I, and I've said, wow, that video is is the smoking gun in terms of establishing liability and getting compensation for my client. And I've also had cases where we get the video, and it actually shows that what happened was Reasonable, okay, and, and that's what was necessary. Yeah. So uh, now, one of our our standard things when we get involved in these cases is we immediately make inquiries as to whether there is any video of the defendant, and we try and get early disclosure of that because uh, that is going to be the determining factor as to who wins or who loses that particular case.
0: Sure. Mm-hmm. Any um, uh, video as a as, as a deterrent we talked about this a little bit off off the air as well. I mean, a lot of police forces, we don't do this here yet, but a lot of police forces, a lot of them in the states where these body cams, now they can Turn them off, I guess, which adds another whole dimension to what's going on down there. And I know we're ta- not talking about U.S. and not exclusively the police, but where I'm going with this is: Do you find that a lot of these things uh, can deter what people do, uh, a- act as like a discouraging factor in how somebody acts, or do we just almost always forget we're being watched? Yeah.
1: In my own personal experience, I don't think the existence of the video does much to change behavior. It, it just documents it. Mm-hmm. And I, it's largely the heat of the moment, right? The adrenaline rush and... Uh, video
0: be damned.
1: <laughs> and I often think people that view the video of themselves can't believe what they did or don't remember doing yeah, that. I'll bet that's true. That.
0: I'll bet that's true.
1: And so I, I think it's great to hold people accountable... It's great to help in cases of seeking compensation, like uh, mm-hmm. like my practice is. But I, I don't buy that it actually does much to, uh, to uh, change behavior. At least this type of behavior, maybe more intentional, deliberate, thought out behavior, it might regulate. But the heat of the moment uh, type thing, I, I'm haven't seen any evidence that. It well, does
0: much. We, we've seen a lot of videos where it leaves us a scratch, a scratching our head and say, "How could somebody knowing they're on video do that?" Yeah. How could, you, how could they do that? You yeah. know, even under extreme circumstances,
1: it makes you wonder. The part that kind of bothers me in some of these stories coming from the U.S. is the efforts by the police seemingly to prevent cell phone video from occurring. So we have these situations where there's a right. confrontation, and people will stand there and video it with their cell phone, and we see the police.
0: Either, Being aggressive with the cell phone operator.
1: Yeah, either confiscating it or, or telling them to shut it off, and, and that's pretty distressing as a... You know, as a citizen of the world and and um, I think what are they afraid of? They should be held accountable so
0: this this holds training in these uh, you know be it law enforcement, be it corrections, be it private security, whatever training becomes tantamount right to to this stuff
1: absolutely and uh, and there is training, um, but I almost view it as a weeding out process. Right? There are some people that shouldn't be private security guards. Mm-hmm. There are some people that shouldn't be bouncers because mm-hmm. uh, they're volatile and, and you don't know in the heat of the moment what they're going to do. And I, I think these types of claims... Claims help us to identify those people and to ensure that they're not in those positions.
0: Yeah, interesting stuff. Um, Chris Richard is our guest every week here on legal matters, and we have about thirty to forty-five seconds left. Is there something on uh, uh, excessive force we have not covered off yet that you wanted to get out there before we turn you off? No, but I do. Ha- <laughs> I do have a matter of great importance oh, that, why, that why, I, I why? want to
1: uh, ask our listeners. All right. So next week, yes. I'm. Spending a couple of days in Los Angeles. Okay. I have never been to Los Angeles before. Okay. So if any of our listeners. Have a suggestion, or, or from experience, something that I need to do. Oliveira Street is one. Yeah, when I'm in Los Angeles, I'm
0: serious. Street Yeah, it's where uh, it's a massive, massive market. All the tradesmen come across, and it used to be uh, an awful lot of illegals would also come across and bring their bring their goods. Uh, it's almost a city unto itself inside L.A. All
1: right, yeah. well, off air, I'm going to get the details of that from you. Yeah, days. well, I don't,
0: that's all I know. Uh, those are, those are the details, yeah. Oliveira Street. Yeah,
1: but anyway, send me an email if it's our listeners, and, okay. and give me your best idea for me to to see when I'm in Los
0: Angeles. See richard at gravesandrichard.com LA advice. <laughs> Pass it on.